We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. Today in the studio, uh, I am your host, Harrison Cayley. Joining me is are my regular co-hosts, Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Joe Quinn. Hi, everyone. And today we are very pleased to have joining us the author, Doug Valentine. Doug is the author of several books, including the classic Phoenix Program, on the CIA operation in Vietnam, uh, counterinsurgency program. There it is. And we've also he's also written two books on the so-called war on drugs, uh, connections with the DEA, drug trafficking, um, organized crime, called Strength of the Wolf and Strength of the Pack. And his latest book that just came out in, at the end of 2016 is The CIA as Organized Crime. How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. We've got that one here, too. So welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Well, to start out with, um, it's the first time we've had you on the show. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners have had the pleasure of reading your books, um, but I hope they will after the show. Maybe for our listeners that aren't familiar with your work, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you came to write about the CIA, specifically like your first book, The Phoenix Program. So how did, you, um, how did you get the information that you ended up writing about in that book? I grew up in a blue-collar family uh, just north of New York City. My father uh, drove a truck for um, what was called Railway Express back in the 1950s, and he always had a second job. He uh, uh, ran the movie theater in town at night for a while, and then he worked in a um, a liquor store. So he he was working himself to death. My mother had a job, and um, it all had to do with his experiences in World War II. He was a a traumatized war veteran, and he had his first um, uh, debilitating heart attack when he was 45 years old. It changed his life. It changed life for everybody in the family. And um, him and I, we didn't really get along. He was a very conservative kind of a guy, blue-collar guy. Um, he rooted for uh, Johnny Unitas and the, and the Baltimore Colts, and I rooted for Joe Namath and the, and the New York Jets. It was the generation gap kind of thing. But when he had a second open heart surgery, uh, I was about 30 years old. Uh, he was 55. And when he was getting better, he was having nightmares in his, um, in the hospital, uh, intensive care. And they had to actually move him to a room by himself because his nightmares, nightmares were disturbing everybody else. And the hospital sent him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist told him that he had to Talk about what happened to him in the war, if he ever wanted to get better. And uh, so he called me up and he said, I understand you want to be a writer. I got a story to tell you. And uh, uh, he told me about what happened to him in World War II. And uh, it enabled me to write my first book, which was called The Hotel Talk Loaded. And it was about my father's experiences. And it, it really woke me up to... Um, was like the first step I took in understanding American society and American culture, that there were a lot of my friends from my generation had fathers who were walking around from World War II who were very traumatized by the war experience, which is not something that Americans experience. Unless you're a veteran and you go overseas and you fight a war, you don't really know what it's like. 
you know, there's kind of an envelope here in America that protects everybody from certain realities. And actually being in a war is, is one of them, and it's a really big deal. So my father and I formed a bond that we had never had before. And uh, I started to look at the older generation and veterans in a different light. And after that book came out, I wanted to try to relate to Vietnam veterans. The guys from my own generation who had gone off and fought in Vietnam and had been, to some extent, vilified by um, uh, a lot of people for doing that. And I got to know Vietnam veterans against the war. Uh, the Vietnam veterans accepted me because of this book that I had written about my father. Mm-hmm. My father related to Vietnam veterans. And uh, uh, I wanted to write a book about Vietnam that would get it, try to bring this, all these issues home. And, and in, in talking to Vietnam veterans, I went to a, a VA hospital in um, uh, New Hampshire where I was living at the time, and I asked the director of this VA hospital, well, what's a story, what's a part of Vietnam that hasn't been written about? And he said, the Phoenix Program. The Phoenix program, which was the CIA's part of the Vietnam War. Very, it was a secret part of the war. And this VA director said he had a guy who was institutionalized at the VA hospital who had been part of Phoenix. And he would get this guy to do an interview with me. And then he called me back a couple of days later and said, the guy won't talk to you. He's afraid that he'll lose his VA benefits if he tells you about what he did in the Phoenix program. And that really shocked me. Why would a, a veteran, and, and in America, especially nowadays, you can't, you can't turn around without seeing a poster uh, promoting veterans and support for veterans. It's very militarist. The society and the culture have gotten very militaristic, and soldiers are held up, you know, as a special class. And anyway, back then I was wondering, well, why would a veteran be afraid of the government? You know, I mean, the government's supposed to support veterans. And so I embarked on trying to find out what this Phoenix program was. Now, coming from a blue-collar family, I have no, I don't, the, the upper classes, I have no awe for the upper classes, for the ruling classes. So I did a little background research, and um, I found out that, a guy named William Colby, who had been director of Central Intelligence, was the guy most closely associated with the Phoenix program. So I wrote him a letter and I sent him a copy of my book about my father. And I said, I'd like to talk to you about the Phoenix program. And he wrote me back and he said, that's a good book. Come on down. I'll talk to you. And that book about my father and his experiences as a soldier was an evidence to CIA officers. And, and Colby started introducing me to senior CIA officers based on this book I had written about my, my father because it demonstrated that I knew what it meant to be a soldier. And it, it, de- it demonstrated that I could bridge this generation gap, which to a certain extent, unless you lived through it, was, def- was really a defining uh, phenomena of the culture. And so a lot of CIA guys just lined up to talk to me based on the on the uh, uh, this book I had written about my father because they thought I would understand them and um, that they that I could relate to them in a way that lots of times their own kids, their own sons couldn't. So it was very deep personal level that all these things unfolded, plus which I wasn't a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism. And I was, I had no, uh, had not been indoctrinated through my, through a career in, in journalism to protect the CIA or to, or to spin it in their benefit. I approached it perfectly rationally. And after a while, I, when I realized why these guys were talking to me and they were telling me all their dirty secrets, that all I had to do was just give them the book to read and sit back and let them tell me everything. I, I, I never had to ask them 
about the dastardly things they did. I, I approached the book very organizationally. But they were inclined to trust me because Colby had referred me to them. Because I could understand their experience as soldiers. And, and believe me, when I say CIA guys consider themselves to be soldiers, you know, it's a very hierarchical organization that's organized militarily. Somebody tells you what to do and you salute and you do it. And they, they consider themselves patriots. And they never second guess what's going on. They just re they constantly have, they have this closed society that reinforces each other's beliefs about the horrors of communism or fundamental Islam. They have this very narrow set of beliefs that they reinforce each other, and they're they're actually quite prone to accept you if they, if you look like me, <laughs> if you look like a Methodist. Anglo-Saxon guy and your father was in the war and you wrote about him, you know, they tend to accept you. And so they spilled all their secrets to me about how the CIA is organized and operates. Of course, they weren't particularly happy when the book came out and about halfway, as I was going through it, about halfway through it, they started realizing that it, this wasn't really, that I wasn't really the person that they thought I was and that's when the, you know, I mean, I filed a, when the book came out, I got a terrible review. And, but I had already filed a Privacy Act request with the CIA and um, found out that they've been keeping a, a file on me the whole, almost the whole time I've been writing this book. And the CIA actually, after they realized that all these guys were like, telling me all these secrets that they actually wrote in their in their files that I had so much information about so much classified material that it could actually damage the CIA. And I started getting nervous and they started telling people not to talk to me, which, by the way, is illegal. And uh, the, an organization like the CIA has no right to tell CIA officers not to talk to somebody. That's censorship. You know, so all sorts of things started happening. And anyway, uh, because I interviewed so many high-level CIA officers, I got insights into the CIA that I, I suspect nobody else in the world ever had, and it, it revealed a whole new facet of the Vietnam War. And moreover, the Phoenix program, due to its nature, has become to model the template that the CIA uses to fight the war on terror and it's become the model for homeland security. Well, Doug, could you get into what exactly the Phoenix program was for us? So you said that you approached it um, from a kind of organizational um, manner to find out how exactly it worked you know, within the CIA as an organization. Um, can you tell us a bit how it worked and what they were actually doing within this organization? The CIA had always been the um, vanguard in the counterinsurgency in South Vietnam. Uh, I'll assume that your listeners have some background because you have to understand the background to understand what the CIA was doing. But anyway, around 1960, this counterinsurgency came to life. It, it, it had, things had been very quiet from 1954 when the Americans first got into South Vietnam until 1960. But in 1950, the president of South Vietnam, a guy named Ziem, who was a Catholic, by the way, who was installed by the CIA, was under so much trouble, under so much pressure from the, the Buddhist population, which amounted to over 90% of the population, that he started passing draconian laws to suppress any kind of uh, dissent. Um, and at that point, people who really were sort of neutral as to whether or not they were, would support this guy, ZM, started coming under the gun. The, the ZM had a very powerful secret police force, which was advised by the CIA. And in response to the repression, that's when the Viet Minh, which the CIA renamed the Viet Cong for, for communists, started organizing and started mounting up um, an, an insurgency, okay? 
And by 1963, the insurgency had gotten so powerful that the CIA assassinated Ziem and replaced him with a cabal of Buddhist generals, which they thought would help stem the tide. But it didn't. The people by that point were relating, were equating the government that the, they understood that the CIA and the Americans were actually creating governments to oppress them. So now they now the battle, the insurgency had become aimed at the Americans to get the Americans out of South Vietnam so they the Vietnamese could reclaim the country for themselves. And by 1965, the only way the United States could put down the insurgency was to send in American troops. And that in 1965 is when American troops start uh, landing in South Vietnam, and they start fighting these insurgents who just want to get the Americans out of the country and take the country back for themselves. By 1966, the Americans realized they could not defeat the insurgency militarily or the North Vietnamese troops that were coming down and helping the insurgents in South Vietnam. And at that point, the CIA started to organize and bring together the various programs that become the Phoenix program. And the Phoenix program is different, and it's run by the CIA, because what it aimed to do was to kill off, capture, interrogate, and oppress the civilian members who were behind the insurgency. Not soldiers, not even sappers who are guys who are carrying bombs and blowing up the U.S. Embassy or anything like that, but civilians actual just people, civilians. The CIA is now going to, the only way they can they can end the insurgency is go after the civilians who are behind it. And these are people who are political. They're just, they're, they're, they're administrators. They, um, it might be a, a, a woman who's in the uh, Farmers Association, which organizes clandestinely. Uh, it's a secret government, which in, when, when, the, when the Phoenix program was brought, uh, examined by Congress in 1971, one of the congressmen said the Phoenix program, if it was involved, if, if it was in the Civil War, would have been assassinating the mayor of Macon, Georgia. It would have, it was going after the political people who were not carrying arms. And so it violated the Geneva Accords. It was absolutely illegal to do this. And the, the, through the Phoenix program, the CIA brought every intelligence program and every uh, paramilitary program that was uh, like 25 of these programs, and it began coordinating them out of what it called Phoenix Centers, which it set up in every every district. There were 240 districts in Vietnam, South Vietnam, and they created a Phoenix Center in each one of those districts, and they created a, a Phoenix Center in every province. There were 44 provinces, and the provinces had a Phoenix Center. And they coordinated all the clandestine police, paramilitary, military services to go after, to identify these civilians, put them in prison and kill them. And it was totally against the law. And that program was considered what the, the, the program that saved the United States in, in South Vietnam, although it was secret and the, and the press never reported on it. It was actually imprisoning and killing all these civilians that swung the war in America's favor. favor, uh, um, favor. And it was totally funded by the United States and managed by the United States through various South Vietnamese agencies, which fronted for the CIA, um, including and especially the South Vietnamese Special Police Force, which ran an interrogation center in every province and had agent nets that were, it sent out around the country, all across the country, to identify the members of the, the insurgency, the civilian members, which they called the VCI, the Viet Cong infrastructure. And they also, the CIA, went after these people, especially in the countryside, through what it called counter-terror teams, the same kind of counter-terror teams that the SEALs and Joint Special Operations uh are using today. This is the exact same policy and system, and it's organized the exact same way that the United States is fighting insurgencies in Afghanistan, Iraq, 
anywhere in the world that the special operations forces are working in conjunction with the CIA. This is what they're doing. They're going after civilians, the civilian members of the Taliban, the civilian members of you name it, whoever is opposed to the United States. The CIA goes after the civilian leaders and kills them. Doug, um, <clears throat> Doug that's uh that description you just gave is a uh, of counterinsurgency is a hallmark of, of counterinsurgency tactics by various different governments uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, where uh, they eventually or they quickly realize that the real enemy in the country that they want to control or take over is the population because the actual armed insurgents in any, or armed rebels in any uh, campaign, military campaign inside a country where the people are attempting to kick out an invading force, uh, those armed uh, rebels invariably get their support from um, the local population. And the local population is much more numerous and the the rebels uh, would not be able to survive without the support of the local population. So it seems to me in reading about these things that Western governments have quickly realized that, well, we got to intimidate uh, or in some way force the local population to submit, to stop supporting the, this relatively small group of, of, of uh, armed uh, individuals. That's exactly right. And, and um, all of these, and, and that was uh, discussed at great length, by the CIA and, and all the, peop- the the big brains who are put, putting together American counterinsurgency policy. And let me give you just some, put it in some context. My father-in-law, Andy McKevitt, was born in Ireland and um, uh, grew up along the border in, in between uh, around a town called Newry, which, and, and he was, he, he died. You're joking. Hmm? You're joking me, right? Um, uh, no, no, no. I actually, through my marriage, have Irish citizenship. But anyway, Andy McKinley. Well, I was going to say the reason. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause <laughs> I'll the, finish the my re- story. Then I'll, then I'll present you with my bona fides. But, but anyway, when I told Andy, Andy died a couple of years ago. He was 99. He, he was born in 1911. So he was 10 years old during the Irish um Civil War. And he remembered it very clearly. The goddamn black and ki- black and tans, you know, and uh he um he he started running marathons in New York City when he was sixty seven and he always wore a England out of Ireland t shirt. He 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 was a communist when he came to the America in the nineteen thirties. when I told him about the Phoenix program, he said to me, Well that's exactly what the Brits did to us in Ireland. And they had a barracks up on the hill. And um, uh, when when they wanted to, when at night, the soldiers would dress up like Irishmen, uh, and they would they would come out of the barracks, and they would kill our our people, not just the not just the guys in the IRA, but they knew the family members of the guys in the IRA. And the soldiers would come out of the barracks at night and they would kill their wives and their children. They'd put them in a barn and they'd burn the whole barn down. Well, that is the Phoenix program, okay? It's terrorism directed against members of the civilian population in order to suppress the armed insurgency. But it's if you look back, you'll see that the Romans did it too. It's always been done. It's not something that people in power are unaware of. What the, what the CIA does in the Phoenix program is to turn this into a, a, a highly refined bureaucratic system and, and, and to make it super technological and, and, and to uh, refine it to such a degree that it becomes transferable all around the world. I mean, they bureaucratize this thing. It's, and, and, and it goes, anything that can't be assimilated into the quote American way, into a consumer society, into, um, 
uh, our belief system, anything that can't be assimilated, well, they become subject to this new highly refined bureaucratic Phoenix system, which is which is how it becomes how it becomes systematized and applied to homeland security, and and how it becomes the template for the Department of Homeland Security and its fusion centers, which are now in in every uh, state across the country, and it, it becomes the template for the FBI's counter anti-terrorism uh, task forces. It, it, what it does is it. Whereas in, in, in Ireland, along the border, it was just a group of soldiers dressed like Irishmen and, and came out at night. Now it's systematized. Now it coordinates the guys in the barracks with the special branch, with uh, the Navy, with the local police forces, which with 25, 30, 40, 50 different organizations with civic institutions and all of these different organizations now are feeding information into a computer. And there's a guy in, in, in every Phoenix Center who gets all this intelligence about dissidents, civilians. And they and, and now they know everything about everybody. And, and, and they can pick you out and they can go after you in ways that, are, that don't include now just putting everybody in a barn and, and burning the barn down. Now they can ruin your reputation. Now they can do. They can suppress you in, in, by putting you, your name in the newspaper as so and so was investigated for domestic terrorism, or so and so is part of a um, uh, environmental group that's 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 planning on attacking some corporation for fracking. You know, it's just become a highly refined bureaucratic process that coordinates every government agency and almost every civic institution that that is interested in expelling anybody from the system who can't be assimilated because they're a dissenter. It's got cutting-edge technology. It, it has uh, graduates of Yale who, are, who, who, know, who, who got uh, graduated come on in organizational behavior. They study mm. psychologically how people behave, and they incorporate that into their theories and their practices of how to control people. They control the 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 media. The media is part of this. It's the indispensable part of it. They don't tell you that all this is going on, but it is, and it, and it's been evolving and it's been developing, and that's that's why in this new book, the CIA is organized crime. I try to discuss it philosophically as well as with case studies to show that it that it, it's now become integrated into the very nature of what it, what American society is and where it's going. And if you if you chart the historical arc in all these different facets that contribute to what this Phoenix you know modern manifestation of program of the Phoenix program is, you can see exactly where it's going. You can see exactly where it's heading because you've seen where it's been and you see how it's evolved. But people can't do that because it's illegal to talk about the CIA. <laughs> you never hear anybody talk about the CIA because they, the, the legislative uh, branches of the government are part of it, too. And, and starting in 1982, they created this. They passed legislation called the Agent Identity Act that makes it Im illegal for the press to name a CIA officer or to discuss CIA operations and methods. If like John Kiriak, who you, you start talking about it, they put you in jail. So the security services have, have all, not only just developed this method, this Phoenix method, at the same time, the legislative lawmaking branches of the government made it illegal to talk about it or to reveal this, these protected people that are running this whole operation. The the reason I I I, I asked you if you were joking about your story about your father in law was uh, is that I, I'm actually from Newry. Oh, you're from Newry. <laughs> yeah, I'm from Newry, and, and I. Uh, Andy's from a little town called Edentuber, E D E N T U B E R, which is by Jonesboro. Yeah, Edentuber. Yeah, by Jonesboro. Yeah, that's just. A, yeah, yeah, which I think means Wells Brim in Irish. Uh, yes. And, says, yeah. and so, you know, I mean, my wife and I went back to, uh, in 1986, we went over there so that she could visit the this little, you know, 
little um, tiny little village where Andy grew up, and 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 we got to Shannon. And uh, mm -hmm. my first book had just come out, and I thought, here I am in the land of writers. Mm -hmm. They're going to roll out the red carpet for me, and we're going <laughs> to rent, rent this uh, car. And I fill out the form. And this nice little Irish girl at the, at the airport looks at me, and she says, I'm sorry, we can't rent a, uh, rent a car. And I said, well, why not? And she said, we don't rent cars to writers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't go get go to the first pub and get drunk and crash the thing so my wife had a had a rest <laughs> car but then but we drove all around and we got to uh eden tuber and and andy had grown up with a guy named andy phillips so we got to town and we said um got to jonesboro and we said uh saw some guy walking on the street and he said um do you know where andy phillips lived he went oh Old Andy, you're young Andy. <laughs> and they sent us there, and, and my wife met this guy, Andy Phillips, who was the same age with her father. It was just uh, just this beautiful experience sitting in this little thatched roof, you know, hmm. house in, in, in Ireland with a little peat fire going, and everybody from town, everybody mm -hmm. from this village came over. The word went out, you know, and I mean, it was just a, a steady procession of, of people coming in to, to take a look at Andy's daughter and have a have a little whiskey. Oh, we love this mm. whiskey. But you know, they were when I was there in eighty six, they still had what were called unapproved roads across the border. And mm -hmm. they had they had barracks set up all along the boundary. And mm -hmm. uh, when we were staying there, we stayed at a um a, a little place in and uh um, just the day before, some kid had stepped on a landmark mm. out in the field. You know, yeah. it, was, it was the troubles were still going. And uh, so these things, in the 30 years since we were there, the English certainly have, the British certainly have adopted it, and they apply it. And um, uh, it's just that the United States is at the forefront. The United States is the de facto, you know, leader of the free world, and and they're the ones that are that are really um, promoting the hell out of this thing. The guy who uh, Trump chose as his national security advisor is a guy named General Mike Flynn. Uh, he was born in 1956 in Rhode Island, and he was uh, in military intelligence. He wasn't a West Pointer, but he, he was in military intelligence. He was actually the head of uh, intelligence for the Joint Special Operations Command in Afghanistan for a while and in Iraq for a while. And he is an advocate of these Phoenix centers. And uh, he, he, this is, this is the, the way he sees the way that America is going to police its colonies. And believe me when I tell you, Afghanistan's a colony and Iraq's a colony and they want Syria as a colony. And Africa is being colonized. And basically, the Joint Special Operations Command goes targeting any kind of military or armed resistance to American influence in these, in these colonies. But it's the CIA, clandestinely, that goes after the political people and knocks them off. In, in, and you'll never hear about all those assassinations that are going on in the New York Times, you know, as secret as the Joint Special Operations Command is, and as little well known as it is, well, the CIA is actually the force behind the J Joint Special Operations Command. And, of course, they conduct all their own secret operations through the security forces that they cultivate in each of these nations. The CIA has created a security force. It completely owns it. it. It completely finances it in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in many of the African nations uh, where it's the United States is attempting to create its colonies. And this is all very super secret. And it's through those secret police forces that it really uh, brings a hammer down on the civilians and, the, and, and any kind of domestic opposite, uh, opposition to imposing the American way on these countries. And that's that's what I try to get at uh, in this book, The CIA is Organized Crime, because everything they do in affecting these secret policies is illegal. It's absolutely and totally illegal. And they go into the countries 
uh, and especially like a, in a place like Afghanistan, the first thing they do is they hire all the warlords they can and uh, uh, give them a, a license to deal drugs so they can make money on the side, or they give them a license to uh, uh, bump off their business opponents so that they can take over their businesses. Uh, it's just a massive, massive extortion scheme all around. <laughs> and I get into all the details of how that works, too. Doug, uh, something that your book drives home is, is this criminality, the scope of the criminality of these operations, uh, first in Vietnam and now in Afghanistan. You just mentioned briefly that um, they basically give a license to warlords in Afghanistan to uh, grow and, and traffic drugs. Um, and uh, I wonder if you can talk for a moment about the extent to which uh, the CIA is in the business of drug trafficking in general. Well, it goes back, yeah, it goes back to the Phoenix program. At the same time, uh, the CIA was taking over uh, the insurgency in South Vietnam in 1960. It was also trying to take over Laos, which is a neighboring nation. And Laos and, and um, Burma and uh, Thailand uh, are huge sources of opium. And in Laos, uh, which had been part, of, which had been a French colony, part part of um, Indochina, the French uh, had an opium monopoly in Laos, which provided opium to uh, uh, throughout the region, including to South Vietnam. And the French ran the, the trafficking in opium from Laos into, into um, South Vietnam. Uh, and, and during the first Indochina War, when the Vietnamese were fighting the, um, the French prior to 1954, from 1945 to 1954, the French actually financed their counterinsurgency against the Vietnamese through the opium trade. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Al McCoy chronicles this in a book called uh, uh, "The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia." It's all very well documented. The French special forces uh, flew the opium out of uh, Laos to uh, Vung Tau, Cap Saint Jacques, and, and then sold it on the market. I've done a lot of work on the international narcotic trade, and I happen to know. I mean, I read some of the the. Uh, uh, correspondence at the time, but in 1948, a federal narcotic agent went to review the situation in in um, in Saigon, and he said the whole the French were supporting the, themselves and the whole counterinsurgency with opium. You know, so the United States knew it was going on, but they wanted the French to prevail, so they did nothing about it. Mm -hmm. When the CIA started taking over from the French, they took over this opium monopoly. And, and, and that's why Laos was called the secret war. The CIA took over the entire uh, monopoly. They put it in the hands of two different factions. One faction was run by a, a, a general named Vang Pao. Vang Pao, his forces controlled the plain of jars and where most of the opium was grown. And this guy, Vang Pao, made fortune. And in return, he emptied up his people, the Hamong, the Mios, which were mountainous tribe who weren't native Laotians, and the CIA organized them into a secret army and used them to fight the communists in Laos. Okay, and in exchange, Vang Pao and the CIA they financed this war through the opium trade, the same opium monopoly that the French had, doing it the same way the French did, and they were, did this in partnership with uh, generals in Thailand and generals in South Vietnam. And throughout the entire war, this system was in place. And not only did Laotian generals um, and Vang Pao profit off this and the CIA finance its war, a lot of um, the, the opium went to various generals in South Vietnam, each of whom had a franchise. Um, generally, the manager was the general's wife so that he was never connected to it. And then they had franchises in each of the war zones that they operated. 
the it, it sort of came to a head in 1970 when Nixon found out what was going on. I mean, there was a tr tremendous problem at the time with American soldiers becoming addicted. And there was so many American soldiers addicted in Vietnam, South Vietnam, that they were starting to, to kill their officers. They were starting to smuggle the heroin back to the United States. Uh, and, and then it was very largely the, the all these drugs, which could all be tracked back to the CIA protecting this whole drug network, they started reaching the United States in, in huge amounts and created an epidemic, a heroin epidemic at home. Of course, the drugs went to the black community and they went to um, hippies. So uh, it sort of became part of this overall coordinated method of suppressing dissent in America mm -hmm. by getting the centers hooked, allowing the drugs to go to them. And it actually becomes incorporated within this new Phoenix system as yet another tool of waging an anti-insurgency. And, and it, it's just so expansive uh, that, um, and, I, and I track this in the book as well, how the CIA actually commandeered the DEA, took over its executive management, its foreign operations, its intelligence services, its special operations services, in order that it could protect its drug dealers around the world. And just through targeting and these kind of Phoenix centers, just go after the, the, the people, the drug dealers that couldn't be assimilated. Whereas nowadays, all the drug dealers in Afghanistan, which provides 90% of the heroin to the United States, are protected by the CIA because they're the ones that are forming, it's the warlords and their militias that form the main line against the Taliban. It's the warlords who provide the soldiers that become a part of the secret services, the secret police, and fight against, you know, average, everyday Afghan civilian. Same thing everywhere around the world, in every country that the CIA operates. They work through the criminal milieu in that country. They give the criminal milieu in that country uh, access to power because they know the criminal milieu will sell out the people because the criminal milieu has been feeding off the public anyway. And they have no loyalty to their own countries. And they're the CIA elevates criminals in every country where it operates because they become the best and most important assets. And actually, uh, you know, in, in talking about this, you have to realize that capitalism is criminal. That you, if you sell mortgages to poor people and you know you can't pay them and you take their house away from them, that's criminal too. And in every country, they work with the bankers. And they work with the, the, the elite whose sole purpose in life is to steal as much as they can from poor people. And that's exactly what's ha also happening. They, they work. The CIA is not a social services organization. It's there to preserve the power. And the powerful people are, perver are, are, are uh, it's, it's supporting are gangster capitalists. There's enough people who are interested in helping you maintain your social security. They're not people that want universal health care. <laughs> this is, you know, this is, they're your enemy. If you're a working class person, you are, the, the CIA is your enemy because it's supporting the, the 1% of the 1% that are, uh, that are making fortunes off all the, all the kind of, um, which are basically criminal enterprises designed to steal your money and make your life miserable. Doug, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. Yeah, I know. We understand that. Um, I just wanted to ask something about um, back in in Vietnam when the CIA was running this Phoenix operation and the you know the government at the time and stuff. Did did you ever get a sense from reading into this and uh, from the statements of people involved and stuff that? that there actually was a genuine belief that communism was the problem and that was what they were they were uh, fighting against no um, in the in the um, there was an enabling document for the for the phoenix program which was written by a man named nelson brickham uh, Nelson Brickham was a veteran CIA officer. He was a veteran of World War II. I, I did many, many interviews with him. 
Those interviews are available online. So, and also the documents that he gave me are available online. The enabling documents for the Phoenix program. And in these enabling documents that Nelson Brickham brought together, he described the communists as perhaps 5% of the population. And he said, and then there are the people who back the United States and they're another 5% of the population. The 90%, he said that 90% of the population just wanted the war to go away. Mm. But the 90%, those 90% of the people, 90%, most of them supported the communists. And it became clear that in order to get at the 5% that were communists, part of the Lao Dong Party, the only way they could get at those 5% was to make the other 90% so miserable that they would turn on them too. And so they, they created this policy of it's not enough to be neutral. They cr started creating laws that made it illegal to be neutral. All right. You had, wow. a, you had to actually cooperate with the government in, a, against the communists or else you were designated a communist sympathizer. And as a civilian, if you were designated a communist sympathizer because you weren't actually an informant for the government, informing on anybody who could be a suspect, then you became a target of Phoenix. So what they did was they put pressure on this 90% in order to get at the 5%, and they extorted them, and they screwed them at, uh, in every possible way. The police uh, just, you know, would throw them in prison and tell us where, you know, tell us where the communists are. And so, and the more and more that that happened, the more and more the people started identifying with the communists. Even if they weren't communists, they started identifying with the insurgency because the CIA and its, its lackeys in the South Vietnamese government had made laws that made them criminals for wanting to be neutral. And this is the mm -hmm. exact same thing that you see happening in the United States today. It's the kind of rhetoric that you hear from Trump. If you're not actually with me, you're against me. And the only way that I know that you're with me is if you're out there informing for the police or, or joining this kind of, a, you know, joining a particular organization that says, uh, I hate Muslims or, you know, I hate Mexicans. Or you have to demonstrate that you're with the powers that be or else you become a sympathizer for the enemy and then subject to repression. That's well, the catch twenty two. That's the beauty of the Phoenix system for the for the yeah. powers that be. They can make anybody an enemy simply because you're not out there gung ho supporting the 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 one percent of the one percent. Yeah. Um, so so what was the um, and from your perspective, what was the actual uh, uh, understood reasons or I suppose it would have been covert policy uh, that was being uh, that, that they were hoping to achieve by being in Vietnam in the first place, by being in in, in that area in, in East Asia. The, the the objects that who is trying to achieve the Americans or the the, the American government and the CIA, etc. They wanted to um, uh, uh, create uh, a consumer society with American values in South Vietnam. And it was a Buddhist society which had its own culture, which wasn't really, didn't, wasn't going to be assimilated into this consumer society very quickly. So through primarily information control, they were slowly going to try to uh, 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 train the Vietnamese to become uh de facto American consumers so American businesses could move into South Vietnam, so Pepsi could move in, so that Ford could move in, so that Westinghouse, so that all the corporations could move into uh, South Vietnam, modernize it, uh, and sell their products there so that the corporations could make huge profits. I mean, if you if you were around during the war, I mean, it was it, the, the American embassy was basically a chamber of commerce for American corporations. 
and um, whatever money that got tracks that the, the South Vietnamese government had, they were sending them, they were giving them to American corporations because none of these businesses existed in the South Vietnamese economy. It was a very rural economy. Uh, and even though, even though um, the cities were considered somewhat backwards. So, so in the same way that um, uh, there was just fabulous amounts of money to be made by modernizing South Vietnam, uh, organizing it the way uh, um, American society, society has been organized into a consumer society that buys a lot of needless <laughs> machinery, you know, and, and, and the profits get, you know, it, it was also a source of cheap labor. I mean, the Vietnamese people were, were willing to work for pennies, just like uh, American corporations go through, you know, TPP and the Clinton kind of uh, global deals that are made. Uh, American corporations can, if they move into a country like South Vietnam, have very little overhead. They can pay slave wages, and then they can they can produce sweaters and and sneakers and 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 whatever, and they can sell them back in the United States for a huge huge profit. So that's what America was aiming to do in South Vietnam, and they didn't care if they had to repress everybody and kill half the population to get it done. It's truly mm-hmm. truly evil. And it's, so what's the, happening the, in, it's what's happening in Afghanistan, and it's happening in Iraq. And if you, this guy I was talking about earlier, Mike Flynn, hmm. who Trump is naming as his national security advisor, he calls this, and it's in statements, you just Google his name and put in the, the two words, long war, L-O-N-G-W-A-R. Flynn is an advocate of fighting long war in Afghanistan. In, in Iraq, in Syria, all throughout Africa. It's another word for neocolonialism. It's setting up this Phoenix program in all these countries that the United States wants to take over and, and industrialize so with American corporations so the profits can go back home to American industrialists. And, they, and, and, and neocolonialism is now called long war because it's going to be forever. And these plans are in place at the Pentagon, at the CIA. I mean, they're thinking 20 years into the future. This is how they're going to manage the situation. Is, is that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so it's effectively uh, what you're saying is that the, the whole communist threat uh, during the Cold War that was obviously it was it was pushed very strongly to the American people and people in the West, that the threat of communism uh, necessitated... Uh, you know the CIA and the U.S. military to be involved overseas to to make the world safe for freedom, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It was really it, it was it was to make the world safe for 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 Western corporations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, China is was you know a communist one communist demon, and the USSR mm. was the other communist demon. Mm. Well, since 1949, when China went officially went communist. It has, it has, it's told, its policy has just been to industrialize China. It has not aggressed against mm-hmm. anybody. I mean, it's, it, it's protected its boundaries and it tries to repel mm-hmm. the CIA from coming into it, but, and, and it fought in Korea and it aided the Vietnamese, but China has never been a threat to the United States. It's never made any military, um, uh, Threaten uh, Europe or anything in any way, and and we we know now. I mean, it's well known that all the estimates that the CIA and the military provided about the Soviets and their strength were vastly overstated. The, the entire time that we were fighting the Cold War, Russia was imploding. It's it had been destroyed in World War II. Its entire industrial uh, infrastructure had been destroyed. All the, the 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 threat of the of the Soviet Union was vastly over overstated. It was never it, you know it would have accepted rapprochement much earlier than Brzezinski if if mm. it had the chance. So so a lot of the 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 knowledge or the I, I should say the false knowledge and the assumptions that we have about communism or the threat of communism is 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 false. I mean, these, these assumptions are, are, are based in propaganda that was aimed at us. And, and, and it's actually 
you know, uh, the corporations that are behind this policy of trying to, and, and you see it in the war on terror every day, of making you afraid, of making you afraid of communism, of making you afraid of Russia. I mean, the, the demonization of Putin and Russia or China is just beyond the pale. And, and Americans are getting tired of them. I mean, they realize that at some point that all this has been overstated and, and, and they've been suckers for believing it, that the one problem that they still have is they still believe that the uh, fundamentalists are out to, to destroy America, you know, which is a, another great boondoggle for the security services. And, and, and that's part of, um, that's the main ingredient of the Phoenix program is this kind of psychological warfare that's waged to get the, against the public psychological warfare that's uh, in which the media, which is owned by the cor same corporations that are profiting off the war on terror, which they aim at us in order to make us afraid so that we feel dependent on these people and we give them a free bill, a free hand to do it. Mm. And, but the only way you can get, you know, to understand that it, it, it's overstated is to actually learn about all these things and, and, you know, every once in a while, visit RT, Russia Times, and see what they're saying, or listen to what the Chinese are saying, or read some some uh, reports coming out of these countries that were demonizing, and try to get their side of the story, and to realize that they're populated by people who just want the same things that we want. And, you know, it's, it's not really as, um, we don't really need F-14s flying over football games to protect us. It's hard to fit it all in in a minute, guys. Uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. And you're doing hey, a very good job. job. Absolutely. Doug, so you, you, uh, said, you said a few moments ago that um, some of these operations, uh, counterinsurgency or um, uh, nation-building, uh, is planned for um, over a very long period of time. Uh, we've seen that to some degree with uh, Ukraine. Um, and it's just stunning to, to notice that shortly after the coup of a couple of years ago, uh, we had this uh, Natalie Juresko of the State Department uh, and, and the U.S. Embassy of Ukraine suddenly get elevated to the uh, Minister of Finance of Ukraine. We yeah, 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 the same day she got Ukrainian citizenship. <laughs> and, and um, uh, you know, Joe Biden's son, you know, the vice president of the United States, his son got uh, became the, uh, a vice president at some huge corporation there. I think it's an oil corporation. I mean, if that isn't gangsterism and crony politics, what is? You know, the vice president of the United States helps to overthrow a country and arranges for his son to become a, um, a vice president of a huge oil corporation there. I mean, and this got no mention in the U.S. press. I mean, and when, when it did get mentioned, it was, well, you know, that's business, you know, and, 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 they, and they say, well, business isn't politics. That's business. That's not politics. You know, business is pure. Business is a different realm than politics. You know, if yeah, right. the Ukrainians didn't want this to happen, then the Ukrainians wouldn't have allowed this to happen. But obviously, they want it to happen. Well, bullshit. You know, I mean, they didn't have anything to say about it. The, the, just the way we don't have anything to say about who the Democratic Party is going to push out front to be the nominee. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, these things are made by elite groups of people who have no, you know, for whom democracy and the public will is the biggest enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the average citizens who are part of the Democratic Party. They never would have put Hillary Clinton up there. They hated her guts, and, they, and it was anybody but Hillary, but she got there anyway. You know, Trump's kind of a different a different phenomenon because he ran against the, um, the Republican establishment, but it took those guys, the, the Republican establishment, about five minutes to line up behind him and start rejoicing because he represents Republican values much more thoroughly and completely than any of the candidates did. You know, he was yeah. just an outsider, but he was only an outsider in, in terms of the uh, that he hadn't been part of the establishment. But he, you know, symbolically and, and philosophically, he's the ultimate for them. So 
but you know, average everyday people have nothing to say about the political process here in the United States or in the Ukraine. And and if I could just close, uh, I'm running out of steam. Uh, like I said at the beginning, you know, I come from a blue collar family. My father worked two jobs. My mother worked. They never owned a house. Um, when I br I brought my wife home to meet my parents and. And um, Reagan had just put a tax on their Social Security, and they had this nice – I was doing tree work at the time. I climbed trees for a tree service, and they gave us a nice spaghetti dinner, you know, and a glass of wine. And my younger sister came out and told us that they'd been sharing a can of beans, you know, the day before. My concern is with average people. Mm -hmm. I would like average people, working class people, to be able to take control of their lives. And uh, to do that is a monumental task. Because the rich people like Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son who take over this oil corporation or whatever it was in Ukraine, they're truly evil. The rest of us are just, are just uh, grist for their mills. You know, we just consume it, uh, the things that they shove down our throats. And that's why I write a book like The CIA's Organized Crime, because it's important for average, everyday people not to think that the CIA is some something that they can't understand or doesn't affect them. And um, I just hope that, uh, you know, that's my motivation and the thing that I would like to see happen is that is that uh, working class people and poor people in this country can just start to to share in the pie that's out there, and 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 I'm just trying to make them show how the how the bureaucracy works to keep them down. Um, Doug, we don't want to keep you too long, um, but I just wanted to ask you. I wanted to jump to the very end of your. Uh, latest book, um, the CIA as organized crime, chapter 24. The title is "The War on Terror as the Greatest Covert Op Ever." Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was trying to say to you about how, I mean, you do, you know, apart from 9/11, when 3,000 people were killed, which was really an anomaly, a very strange thing. Your chances of dying as an American in a terror attack are less than you get dying from a bee sting. The war on terror creates more terror than it, than it suppresses. And it's just a cover for American intervention in countries that the, that corporate, the American corporations want to colonize and turn into a little junior chamber or commerces that whether they can get cheap labor and, and uh, steal the resources from these countries through the gangsters that they hire to represent them, who are only interested, who, who will gladly work for the American corporations and the CIA because they're going to get kickbacks for doing it. That this whole war on terror is is a total sham. It is a covert operation. It, there isn't a whole world of terror out there that wants to destroy us. There's just a lot of people who are salt of the earth who just want to be left alone and. Um, it would be nice if the United States really did just leave them alone. If they want to help them, that would be the best thing they could do. Or maybe sell them pharmaceuticals at, at a discount price, you know, or maybe go over and, and, and help with the uh, uh, technological advances that we could help, you know, give them to, to make their lives easier. But waging wars in their country is not helpful. Right. So with that, I'd say thank you for having me on. I, I hope that that's enough for you. I'm tired of talking. <laughs> Great. Yeah. No, that's that's perfect, Douglas. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I just want to say one more time for our listeners that the title of the book is The CIA as Organized Crime, and you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you've also got a website, www.douglasvalentine.com, where you can find um, several or you can find information on all Doug's books and his articles that he's written for various websites and publications like Counterpunch and others. Um, 
So, yeah, we highly recommend that you check out the book. And thanks again, Doug, for coming on the show. And we, can, we hope we can have you again sometime and uh, get into some other topics. I would be delighted to. Uh, it, there's obviously a lot to talk about, and it was mm-hmm. to be on your show. Uh, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for talking to you, Doug. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.